Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. And thank you for joining us today and welcome. This is an hour dedicated to understanding a little more about ourselves, our beliefs, and how we approach enlightenment. Indeed, an hour devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and the sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we think as we do. An hour for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind who we have become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show was all about Holos University, and we spoke with two of the founders, Drs. Bob and Ann Nunley, together with one of their graduate students, Dr. Carla Curtis. Anthony wrote, Wow, I checked out the dissertations at their website, and their students have really done some super fine work. I think I'll enroll just as soon as I can save up some money. Kevin commented, we need many, many more of these types of universities, but I think that a high school curriculum like this would change the world. Cherry wrote, I found your discussion with the folks at Holos University to be very promising of where I think education should go in the future. Thanks for the show. Tommy wrote, I had two great experiences last week. I listened to your show and I downloaded some of your free InterTalk programs. I listened to them all week and my week had to be one of the best yet. I slept well, smiled at everyone, felt terrific, and generally had more fun. All I can say is what a great product and program you have. Thank you. Well, I'll take the thank you, Tommy, and pass one right back at you. We do sincerely appreciate your feedback. Anastasia wrote, Thank you so much, Dr. Taylor. I'm a great admirer of yours. I have bought your InterTalk programs, and they have worked very well. You are a godsend for those of us who struggle to get past our demons. With all my love and respect, Anastasia. Well, thank you, Anastasia, and I'm thrilled that we're here to assist and facilitate those who choose to truly empower their lives and realize their potential. Robert wrote, get this one, Ravinder. Eldon, I adore your work. Now, that's a champion pithy comment, isn't it? <laughs> Thanks, Robert. I like that. I adore your work, too. I use it all the time myself. Mm, so do I. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your email to eldon at eldontaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. We can't get all of your letters on the air, but they do impact our programming. And once again, I thank you for your feedback and continued support. Now to today's show, The Afterlife Explorers. What does it take to be an afterlife explorer? And who were the pioneers? Our earliest religious and philosophical literature addresses an afterlife. Arguably, I suppose, the belief in an afterlife is well established by the time ritual burial occurs. So from that perspective, the life hereafter and the continuation of the soul or spirit or Atman and so forth, according to your own tradition, is a done deal and has been for longer than written history. Now that said, there is quite a difference between the mythology of old, the customs and practices of ancient religious rites, and the scientific method of investigation and empirical evaluation. Many scientists of the past and present have investigated the afterlife and derived credible evidence. Does it meet the rigors of, say, a double-blind study? 
Well, the answer is no. Still, does the evidence rise to the level we would convincingly send someone to prison over, perhaps even take their life? And that is the standard used in law known as beyond a reasonable doubt. And for that, I certainly believe it does. Our own investigation interviewing over 20 experts ranging from medical doctors to physicists and evaluating everything from reincarnation to NDEs and much more made that case quite competently, in my opinion. In fact, if you've not checked out that investigation, go to my homepage, eldentaylor.com, and click on Beyond a Reasonable Doubt Investigation. Now, our guest today has quite an extensive history when it comes to investigating the paranormal. We will not only be speaking him uh, about his two latest books, both just hot off the presses, by the way, but also about quite a lot of other disincarnate matters for which he has made himself an expert. Our guest is Michael Tim. Mike has been with us before. Indeed, he is becoming a regular, and he is a favorite of mine. He has a bit of a cough today, but we think we can get through the show. For those of you unfamiliar with Mike, he has spent the last several years researching and writing about communication with the dead. After graduating from San Jose State College in 1958, where he studied journalism, and after spending three years as an officer in the Marine Corps, Michael Tim had two careers, one in insurance claims management and the other as a freelance journalist. His articles have appeared in more than 40 publications. He now serves as vice president of the Academy of Spirituality and Paranormal Studies and edits one of the Academy's two quarterly publications, The Searchlight. He is the author of many books, two of which we will discuss today, Transcending the Titanic and The Afterlife Explorers, Volume 1. Mike's books are a must-read, in my opinion, if you're truly interested in the afterlife in any of its forms. So let's get him in here. Welcome back to Provocative Enlightenment, Mr. Michael Tim. Thank you very much, Eldon. I appreciate being back. And we do have summer over here now, so you might want to consider um, you know, catching a plane over here as soon as you're free. You know, I, I, my wife and I want to do that. We she's, she's shaking her head violently upward on this one, you know, like one of those puppy dogs in the back <laughs> yeah. of the car. <laughs> So you're in, in in Hawaii, and the sun always shines over there, doesn't it? Yeah, it gets a bit boring, though. I mean, uh, we, we'd like to have, or at least I'd like to have uh, a little contrast now and then, but we, we put up with it. <laughs> you put up with it? Okay. To begin with, Mike, let's start. Where you do in your new book, The Afterlife Explorers, the story begins with a notion of wrapping. Uh, flesh this out for us and explain why you chose to begin there and what's the importance of the wrapping and the history of of this phenomena we call mediumship. Well, mediumship uh, supposedly began in 1848 with the so-called with the Fox family of um, Rochester, New York, and it began with raps that supposedly came from the spirit of a deceased. These raps had been heard by other people over the preceding 15 or 20 years, um, but nobody apparently attempted to find out exactly what, you know, what they were they were coming from or what they meant until the, the Fox sisters figured out that somebody was trying to communicate, and they arranged a little 
signal that you know two two raps meant yes, three raps meant no, and so forth. And so it all began then. And we're told by subsequent messages that Benjamin Franklin, uh, working with Emanuel Swedenborg, uh, is responsible for it on the other side. Apparently, after Franklin died and Swedenborg had died some years before, they they felt that um, there was a need to communicate with the world that the um, the belief in life after death uh, had declined considerably since uh, the age of reason and then uh, punctuated by Darwin and Darwinism. And uh, it had, had become a very um, materialistic and hedonistic world at that time. So uh, we're told that Franklin is the one that um, invented this method and it went from these wrappings to table levitations or table tilting which accomplished the same thing, so many tilts of the table for a yes and so many for a no. And and then it went, it went on to different forms of mediumship, trans-mediumship, direct voice mediumship, physical mediumship, and so forth. You, you know, Mike, I, I, I suppose one of the things that really caught my attention as I, as I read your latest book was a, a disconnect. Uh, I've always thought that, you know, there was a kind of mediumship involved where, you know, historically we had oracles or we had soothsayers. Uh, we had, uh, you know, people who seemed to talk to someone on the other side who was sharing information. Now, maybe on the other side, you know, I'm not talking about David talking to God, but uh some of the, you know, those folks that if we look at the biblical literature, we're told to beware of because they were in communication with spirits on the other side that were not benevolent. Uh, how, how does that fit in or have I got that all wrong? Yeah, no, I, I agree. That was just, um, more clairvoyance and clairaudience, I think. Uh, that that's, goes back to biblical times and we're told in the Bible to beware of... Um, uh, such mediums that they're they're evil and so forth, and that that's the main argument by fundamentalists today. They cite uh, Deuteronomy or uh, whatever passage of the Bible they they can find and say, you know, the Bible says, you know, this is bad. But um, that that's been around for for many years. But this wrapping type was different and more dynamic, I guess you could call it, and and subject to uh, testing by researchers. Okay, so so let's let's take it from there. Then the research side of it. Now, the SPR figures prominently in the history of psychical research, uh, and you and you spent a good deal of time uh, discussing them and and their the uh, the development. Uh, tell us about how and when they were founded, their objectives, and and their activities still to this day. Yeah, the Society for Psychical Research was actually formed in 1882 by several men. Frederick Myers is the man given most uh, of the credit, but uh, Professor Henry Sidgwick, uh, Sir William Barrett, and several others were also involved. But my, my book, The Afterlife Explorers, which is Volume 1, actually precedes um, everything that, that took place in 1882 and thereafter. I, I, I'm talking about the Afterlife Explorers from Swedenborg on up to 1882, and I've covered 12 people in the book, eight of them researchers and four mediums. 
Okay, but uh, the SPR, they're, they're still operating. That's they're, they're, they're is, still operating, okay. uh, you know, with, uh, based in London, and the American Society for Psychical Research is still operating. I think you don't hear much from them out of New York. Right. Uh, they're, they're still operating. They're not doing the uh, uh, extensive research they did back in the 1880s and on up to about 1930. Somewhere around 1930, this research uh, took a turn. I guess the um, the scientific world figured that it had more than enough, had reached a point of diminishing returns and needed another direction. So they Psychical research turned into parapsychology during the 1930s, and and um, so we have very li- have had very little in the way of um, mediumship research since then. Okay, now Volume One, your book, it, mm-hmm. it basically lays the foundation for the Society of Psychical Research as we know it today, and parapsychology as you've defined it by moving through those early psychical researchers, uh, the most important of which probably, if I read your book right, or at least my interpretation, would be Swedenborg. So tell us about him. Swedenborg was a scientist uh, from Sweden who, um, somewhere around age 56, realized he had clairvoyant abilities and clairaudient abilities, and he he gave up his scientific uh, pursuits and began daily meditations, if you want to call them, in which he would go out of body and explore the spirit world. And he ended up writing something like 12 thick volumes on his explorations of the spirit world. Um, and I think that um, he was the first to really point out that the spirit world is not a horrific hell and a humdrum heaven, that there are many levels, many planes in the spirit world, and that we cross over to one of those planes as we are in this world. There's no great change in the personality once we we cross over. Uh, You quote several of Swedenborg's uh, statements in in the book, and... uh... In one of his statements, he basically says, if one's intention is to become richer than others just for the sake of riches or for enjoyment or to have influence over others and so on, that that is an evil intention. A purpose, a, a person of this kind does not love his neighbor. And he, and he goes on. What happens to that individual that uh, Swedenborg is uh, discussing with an evil intention? Well, we're told not only by Swedenborg, but by subsequent uh, researchers that that person probably won't even realize he's dead, uh, that he'll sort of flounder in the uh, ethers and continue to try to live uh, in the earth life. And it's going to take some time, however time plays out in that realm, to actually awaken to the fact that he has died. Mike, when... When we look today at the evidence for uh, life after death, one of the one of the things that comes, you know, to the surface, uh, uh, particularly of late, with a young man who had full memories of being a World War II pilot and appeared on all the national television circuits, is this whole uh, idea of uh, reincarnation. 
But Swedenberg, if I read him correctly, believes that the concluding state of a person's life uh, at the time of his death is his last judgment. So did what was his view on reincarnation? Uh, he really didn't speak about it. He alluded to it in a place or two, as I recall. I, I don't have the passages in front of me, but he just he didn't really um, tackle reincarnation. And uh, the same can be said of a number of other researchers, and I think I understand why, because I, I don't think reincarnation is, is um, something we can really comprehend. I believe in reincarnation. Uh, I just don't think it plays out like most people who believe in it think it does, and I don't think it can be understood by most of us. So I, I think that's the reason why Swedenborg avoids it, because uh, he couldn't explain it, or he felt that, uh, you know, to people reading his books would not understand it. Now, for those who are not un unfamiliar with Emanuel Swedenborg, we have discussed, of course, his uh, psychical inclinations, uh, spiritual inclinations, but he was a scientist. What kind of scientist was he, Mike? A little bit of everything. Um, he was primarily a physicist and chemist, I think, but uh, he was a great inventor. He's the first man to... Um, come up with the idea of a submarine, as I recalled. I'm, I'm just trying to go back, trying to refresh my memory here as to um, some of the other things he invented. Right. But, uh, Significant uh, discoveries in astronomy, anatomy, magnetism, mechanics, chemistry, and geology. This is right, quite right. A, a, a very credible man. That's that's where I, you know, the point I wanted to go. You, you moved from Swedenberg to Andrew Jackson Davis and Indeed, you actually compared Davis to Edgar Casey. Why the comparison? Well, let me just point out one more thing about Swedenborg to follow up on what oh, you please. said. Uh -huh. and that is that uh, Stanford University did um, a um, some kind of research about 20 or 30 years ago. I, I don't recall exactly when, but they attempted to rate all the great scholars and scientists of the past uh, or give them, an, give them an IQ based upon their works. Um, anyway, so the, the, the top three were Swedenborg, uh, Wolfga Wolfgang von Goethe of Germany, and uh, John Stuart Mill. That they were the only three who they figured had IQs over 200. So he is considered um, a pretty brilliant man. Yeah. But but as far as Andrew Jackson Davis, uh, known as the Poughkeepsie Seer, he came along and. Around 1830, he had clairvoyant abilities and was able to um, uh, see into the spirit world, and he wrote several books on what his observations were. He even um, predicted the, the uh, Fox family um, um, discovery of, of wrappings. Mm -hmm. Indeed, but why did you, I mean, is the comparison with Casey... On the basis of his clairvoyance, is I'm not sure. I don't recall comparing him with Casey. If I did, I don't, I, I don't remember it. Uh, it. He was a clairvoyant primarily, but um, um, I don't recall comparing him with Casey. Okay. Well, I'm sure you did. I read the chapter, but I, I'm going to leave that. It, it, it must have been maybe that he was just clairvoyant. Uh, well, he was a healer also. I mean, in that sense, he was like Casey, that... that you know, he um, he prescribed uh, various things to overcome illnesses and so on. But uh, so, in, in that sense, he was like Casey. Okay. Uh, 
Davis had no medical training. Is that correct? Not early on. He did um, obtain an, an MD uh, later in life. Uh, I don't know exactly where he went to school or how he got it, but uh, I understand it was a valid medical doctor degree. My understanding is he got it after he began to give medical readings. Yeah, definitely. Uh, he was around 45 or 50, I think, when he actually got his degree. So it's almost like either through correspondence, memory, or something, uh, he had a great deal of knowledge before he entered medical school. Yes, uh, which he supposedly got from the spirit world. Right. Now, he he also saw air travel. What what was the deal with the air travel? Uh, that was in one of his writings. Um, let me refresh my memory on that. He just... just uh, Read that passage. Uh, he he wrote, "Men sneer at the fanatic who think who thinks he can ride in the air. Are you quite sure that the man is a fool who thinks that one of these days we will rise up in the air and be as, as safe, more certain, far quicker in our voyage than when shipping for Europe on the best steamer?" Men laugh at those who dare suggest its scientific practicality. Most people belong to the race who have the power and the pomposity to laugh at fantastic at fantastics until their children adopt the invention of those fanatics and until mankind enjoys all the luxuries which such improvements diffuse through the world. Now I say mankind are not yet old enough on this planet, nor is the atmosphere old enough, nor is electricity tame enough, and the mental world itself is not large and good enough to realize aerial navigation. Therefore it will not come right away, but just as sure as I am now speaking, as certain as birds fly, so certain will safe, swift, and delightful air navigation be man's achievement. So this was written sometime around 1835 um, to 40. Right. So maybe like Casey, in in trance or, you know, through mediumship, he was able to see into the future, make forecasts about the future, uh, to heal the sick, and to otherwise produce some rather astonishing um, testable results. Yes, definitely. All right. I, I think, you know, to me, uh, as, as we look at each of these people uh, in the next half hour, what we're really looking at is an evidentiary trail. Uh, and, and it's because of this evidentiary trail, if I've got it right, Mike, uh, the solid science trail that we today have any legitimacy whatsoever to psychical research. Yes, I don't think the evidentiary trail really started with Swedenborg or, and Andrew Jackson Davis, though. They were, most of what came out of them was profound material that, you know, couldn't be checked. It was, you know, it was not All right, really evidential. I'm, I'm going to have you hold that thought. When okay. we come back, I'm going to ask you where the evidentiary trail begins then, all right? We're... Uh, we're speaking with Mr. Michael Tim about his book, The Afterlife Explorers. If you're not already in our chat room, this is a great time to join in the conversation. Just go to eldentaylor.com forward slash chat. Stay tuned. You don't want to miss what's coming up after these words from some of our friends. Have you talked to yourself lately? What does that inner voice say? Are you constantly hearing negative feedback? Ready for a change? InnerTalk, Eldon Taylor's patented subliminal technology, can do just that. Change your inner self-talk. 
Turn off the negative by replacing it with positive affirmations. Inner talk has been researched at universities such as Stanford and by governments around the world and has been proven effective at priming your self-talk. Armed with a new positive outlook, you'll find everything becomes easier. From losing weight to stop smoking, giving presentations to riding horses, learn new things to being a powerful salesperson. Choose your title for change today. Visit www.innertalk.com. That's I-N-N-E-R-T-A-L-K.com. Innertalk.com. Every day, every moment, we face choices. Yet, how many of those choices are truly our own? Are you ready to step onto the path of discovery? Read Eldon Taylor's New York Times bestseller, Choices and Illusions, now revised, updated, and expanded. Eldon combines provocative information, scientific research, and his own life's journey into a powerful message that we have the power to change. All we must do is be willing to choose to take the chance and change. Get your copy today from all bookstores. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. And welcome back. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Michael Tim about the afterlife and his newest book, The Afterlife Explorers. But before we get back to today's show, a couple of points of business. I want to remind you to like our Facebook fan page for Provocative Enlightenment Radio. As a fan, you'll always know where we are and what's on next. I would also like to invite you to join me on Facebook while you're there. Now, one more point of business. The early registration discount for the upcoming ICANN conference in Washington, D.C. has been extended to July 7th. This is a great opportunity to save big, so check it out. Hayhouse.com has all the details. I'll be there, and I'd love to see you all. All right, let's get back to the program. Before the break, uh, Mike, I had uh, made the point that in my mind, um, these early scientists were creating the evidentiary trail for what we later come to understand as legitimizing psychic investigation. But you said, not true. Please correct me. Where does that evidentiary trail begin? Well, I, I think Swedenborg and Andrew Jackson Davis um, might be classified as mystics. Both were mediums of one kind or another. I think they were clairvoyant and clairaudient. And the, their investigation of the spirit world began before the Fox uh, sisters um, happening in 1848. But they weren't researchers per se. I think the the first psychical researcher was really Judge John Edmonds of New York. He was a um, uh, a lawyer, and then he became uh, a senator in New York, and eventually uh, Chief Justice of the New York Supreme Court. In 1850, uh, his wife died, and he was it was suggested he was grieving. It was suggested to him by friends that uh, he should see a medium. This was again in, actually in 1851, uh, three years after the Fox. Um, Sisters began the whole thing, and it, it had spread quite, quite a bit throughout the United States and even over to England and, and uh, France by that time. But um, there were many people like Edmonds who thought it was just all bunk. And he decided, well, I'm going to go ahead and attend and just show, show my friends, um, you know, how, how, that it's all fraudulent. 
Anyway, he went. There were some very evidential messages that came through at that sitting, which uh, really stymied him. And he decided then he was going to go ahead and investigate other mediums. So he spent the next 23 months uh, going from one medium to another. And over that period of time, actually very early on in in his investigation, he became convinced that uh, mediumship was real. And he wrote uh, uh, the first book on the subject called Spiritualism, which was... um, uh, published in 1853, I think it was. So he's he he's really the first um, psychical researcher that you know investigating the the uh, mediumship of, of others. All right, I'll stand corrected. Although I might, you know, argue a little with you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> meaning that well, no, Swedenborg I, I did come first. in front of him and Swedenborg because of who he was lent such credibility to this this entire field but I I I I, I totally concur with you about uh, Edmund's uh, role in this let's uh let's continue you, it, as you move through the book Mike you talk about a, a number of researchers um that for all intent and purposes, I mean, they're 18th, 19th century scholars and scientists or judges, as you just mentioned, uh, with uh, John Edmonds. Uh, You know, your other books also feature the older researchers. So my question is, isn't their research outdated? I mean, why not focus on something more current? I don't think it's outdated at all. There's nothing um, um, that has come through that research that has really been overturned. And the, the, the problem is, I think, there really hasn't been any psychical research of this nature going on since around 1930. Uh, Dr. Gary Schwartz, as you probably know, did some research on clairvoyance in uh, the late 1990s and early 2000s. But mediumship research pretty much came to a, an end around, and around 1930, and that's when parapsychology became the science and they started looking at ESP and you know various forms of telepathy and precognition and so forth and they just they got they got away from the whole idea of um, survival or life after death actually when the SPR started in 1882 they didn't come right out and say we're looking at the evidence for life after death or the evidence for survival of consciousness they were more concerned about telepathy. They wanted to see if mental telepathy was, in fact, a fact. And it wasn't until they were, you know, about three or four years into the society that they began turning to uh, survival research itself, and that was primarily because of Leonora Piper, a Boston medium who many spirits spoke through. And then, you know, around 1885, 1886, and William James was involved, they, the focus know, turn to survival of death. And it, it, it continued right up on through World War One and and into the early 1920s. And then in 1930 or so, uh, they, they just, they had reached the point uh, of diminishing returns in their research. They couldn't get funding for it. Um, mainstream science had rejected it. And at that point, they turned to as I said, uh, investigating ESP, and it's never gone back to to uh, research of mediums. It just mainstream science is just um, it hasn't wanted to touch it. 
But, you know, if, if the evidence, uh, albeit anecdotal in many instances, is also, you know, not the kind of information you can easily overlook. So why do you think it was rejected by mainstream science? Uh, I think it was academic arrogance more than anything else. Uh, the mainstream science had been brainwashed with the idea that um, everything that they had been taught by religion was superstition, and uh, they connected all this. Uh, they, they they didn't distinguish between uh, religion and psychical research, and and they, they just didn't want to have anything to do with anything that, that, that couldn't be examined in a laboratory. Now, you're a journalist. You've been a journalist all your life, so I'm going to hand you a hot ball here and but, you know, the fact of the matter is uh, there's a lot of conversation out there today about cultural wars. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, science tends to most people's mind to have this pristine place that it sits that is apart from, you know, the social discussions of the time, what's politically correct and so on and so forth. I don't necessarily see that i indeed see that science is as much a part of that i mean we have you know men like paul kurtz uh who prometheus press uh their stated objective is to debunk anything that for all intent and purposes uh, should suggest that there is such a thing as an afterlife or or a creator we we have this 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 bifurcation, this this polarization that exists in our society, uh, I, I think it exists in the science as well. Do you think that that has any impact on minimizing uh, the legitimacy of uh, scientific investigation in this uh, area? I, I think it does. I think that's one reason why um, there's no funding for it. The universities just won't have anything to do with it based upon this... Um, prejudice that mainstream science uh, has built up over the years. I mean, as you say, there are many exceptions, but uh, we're talking about the majority of um, scientists are the most vocal who just completely reject it, and it's considered uh, a taboo subject. Yeah, I mean, because you're coming from, I mean, you you start with Swedenborg, Mm -hmm. one of the three brightest people to ever have lived, according to uh, uh, the work at Stanford. Uh, you, you you know, you closed just before we went this part of our conversation with William James, uh, an M.D., a father of psychology, uh, philosophy. I mean, just, uh, you know, the, for all intent and purposes, the whole philosophical movement of pragmatism is, you know, has a great debt to William James. So these these are outstanding scholars and thinkers. And then suddenly nothing. Uh, it seems to me that there had to be some other agenda that knocked it off the board than uh, just the idea that, well, we've gone as far as we can go and we've reached the diminishing, you know, the level of diminishing returns. And and for what it's worth, I mean, in my opinion, I think that is, uh, it, it is a part of this whole cultural war. Science is, is a part of that. Your comments on that, Mike? Well, there was actually one... One medium, one case that, that brought it all to an end. Now, the famous case of Marjorie, um, who, her name was really Mina Crandon, uh, took place between 18, the, the research took place between uh, 1925 and 1930, 
And there were about six prominent researchers um, involved in her investigation. And in the end, three of them thought she was a fraud, and three of them thought she was the real thing. They couldn't agree. And that that's when everything changed. They just said, you know, we're never going to agree on this. The, the, the three who didn't believe refused to um, accept various things they saw, the ectoplasm and so forth. She, Marjorie is more of a physical medium than anything else, and they saw, you know, levitations and ectoplasm flowing from Marjorie, but they, they, they just, right. you know, concluded it was all bunk, and the three who believed were convinced that it was genuine, and they couldn't agree, and at that point, the, the whole um, SPR seemed to um, fragment, uh, and... Many, many left the organization, and those who stayed just didn't want to have anything to do with uh, survival research, and that, that's why it changed the ESP. But, but I, I think you just made my point, because correct me if I'm wrong, there was no evidence, um, and by evidence I mean hard evidence, that any of it was a fraud or fake. What we had, it would appear, was a preconceived idea that it wasn't possible. But have I got that wrong? No, no, I agree. But that there was, there were a number of fakes, you know, attempting to make money showing. You know, right, but not Marjorie. No, not as far as I can tell. She, she appears to have been genuine. But there were mediums, and Marjorie may have been one of them, who couldn't. Uh, produce phenomena at all times, and so they felt guilty and decided they had to entertain, and and they turned to trickery. Uh, Sophia yeah, Pal- Palladino was one of those, uh, and a number of others who, you know, they, they felt they had to do something, and when nothing happened, they, they, they turned to tricks. Right, and and that's unfortunate, but you know, if you if you think about it for a minute, we have had many cases of people who have pretended to be medical doctors, have taken jobs in hospitals and have have been met with respect by their fellow doctors and practiced maybe years in a hospital before it was discovered that they were not medical doctors. Right. Uh, right. They didn't have the training, etc. That doesn't cause us to say, okay, well, there's no such thing as a medical doctor uh, or they're all frauds. And I think... You know, part of what's gone on here is that because there were opportunists that would indeed, as you say, do the faking, uh, play for the money, uh, that that has, uh, you know, that, that that so seriously damaged the reputation of mediumship that science tended to, those who might be inclined to support it, tended to want to stay away from it, and those who are predisposed otherwise, used it um, to make sure that the scientific community didn't go near it. My view, for what it's worth. No, I I fully agree with that. Why do you think, then, the mediumship of 100, 150 years ago was so much more meaningful than it is today, Mike? Well, number one, they had better mediums. Uh, Today, all you hear about is clairvoyance and clairaudience. Back then, they had, as I mentioned before, that direct voice mediums in which the voice of the deceased actually came through um, what was called an ectoplasmic um, uh, amplifier. You've seen them in pictures, probably a a cone or a a trumpet-like object, which magnified the voice. And usually this was the voice 
of the deceased that relatives or friends could recognize, and very evidential information came through um, the direct voice. And there was trans voice, which is mostly associated with Leonora Piper and Gladys Osborne Leonard. There's physical mediumship of a kind of D.D. Hume, where levitations uh, were, he, he was levitated and furniture was levitated. And people say, well, what, what's levitation got to do with spirits? I mean, I, I, when I first started you know, reading this stuff, I couldn't figure out how, how, what's the connection between D.D. Uh, Hume um, levi- levitating and the spirit world. And then after I really got into it, I realized that, that Hume explained that he wasn't levitating, he was being levitated. The spirits, his spirit guys were lifting him up. And this was um, um, uh, evidenced by a number of people who observed him. They said but when he was levitated, it was as if somebody were putting their arms under his his shoulders, under his armpits, and lifting him up. His arms were always up as he was you know, being lifted. So even in this physical mediumship, tables floating around, uh, uh, people levitating, that was supposedly done by spirits. We just uh, we don't have that type of uh, mediumship anymore, and of course your question is going to be, why don't we have it? And I, I think the reason is that, um, um, number one, there are a lot of potential mediums out there, they, but they don't recognize it because we're so um, absorbed by television and computers and before television and radio um, that there's no quiet time to develop this ability or, or to even recognize it. I mean... All the good mediums came before radio was was uh, popular, and uh, people, they had, people had quiet time. They sat at home in the dark and and meditated and, or whatever. They, they met in little social groups where the mediumship was developed. But today, um, you know, a, a person may have the ability, but be so absorbed in watching the Desperate Housewives or whatever that uh, you know. It, it, the ability is just not recognized, and it's an ability that clearly has to be developed. I mean, some people have natural mediumistic ability, but they have to be able to understand it and, and develop it over a period of time for it to really function well. You know, many Catholic saints have levitated, Mike, and uh, you know, I'm not, uh, I, I'm, I'm not familiar with the idea that they were lifted up. Uh, St. Francis of Assisi, as a case in point, is recorded to have, you know, raised several feet above the earth. In, in your view, where, when these saints, uh, when levitation occurs, is it that they're being lifted by spirits? That's my understanding. I, I don't know. So if would you say, I, I mean, is that the instance of all levitation? Well, there's no way to prove it one way or the other. I don't know that anybody ever asked St. Francis of Assisi, you know, how he was levitating, uh, uh, there's another famous one, I can't remember his name, that, uh, you know, was not only levitated, but he actually flew, um, you know, over a crowd of people. Um, St. Joseph of Cupertino. That's it, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, no, it's not really documented. I mean, nobody really asked them, you know, who, how is this being done or, you know, who's doing it? Uh, but I, I, my guess is that their spirit guides or whoever were controlling them were were doing the lifting. Now, you know, in the autobiography of a yogi, Yogananda talks about, uh, you know, levitation, but doesn't say anything at all about uh, spirits lifting him. So I, I find that to be a very interesting 
uh, idea that, that that that's you know that's the explanation for why gravity doesn't hold you down. A spirit is lifting you up. I, I you know, there there are all these other theories that have to do with frequency, vibration, belief, and so on and so forth. So that's that's very interesting. Uh, I love your blog, Mike. I'm gonna jump off your book for a minute. Okay. I, I I've actually I've posted some of your writing on my uh, Facebook page in the past, so I'd be remiss not to mention your blog. Uh, indeed, uh, be- before we run out of time, tell our audience what your blog is about, how often you blog, and how they can subscribe and so forth. Yeah, well, it's it's a uh, twice monthly blog. Every two weeks, I post a new um, subject matter, and I just posted one. Uh, yesterday entitled, uh, Is There Pain During Violent Death? But it's, I try and explore the whole gamut of uh, spirituality and tackle just about every subject I can and, and um, you know, spend about uh, 1,500 words or so on each uh, topic and and uh, dig into my extensive library here. I'm sitting in my little, quote, library. You're looking at about 1,500 books on every aspect of the uh, Spirituality, so um, it's nothing is that you know. I have no ability myself. Uh, I'm I'm just a vicarious experiencer and um, uh, who's taken an interest in in this whole subject of life after death. Been primarily mediumship. Uh, uh, I started out with with Edgar Casey and reincarnation. I went from there to near death experiences and then to. Um, uh, mediumship in 1999, and and so I try to write about all three of those areas, as well as some of the other uh, areas that that seem to suggest uh, life after death. And it's a different different topic every two weeks. So that it's, and, I, and, I, and and if I may, I think you know one of the best things about you is that you when you say you don't have any ability, that's not quite right. I mean, you're a very talented person, but you're not a medium, and so. As a journalist, when you present the information, we get a factual, not an, a, an opinion kind of, uh, you know, story, a, a historical review of it. Uh, I really enjoy your blog, but, you know, I mean, we're going to run short of time, and you baited us. So um, if you, you know, if you're decapitated, beheaded, uh, is there pain in that kind of death, Mike? Well, according to... Um some of the the testimony has come through various um, uh, mediums, and the one you're referring to is the one I let off the recent blog with. Was the, what was his name? Andrew Chenier, I think. He was a French poet that uh, was beheaded, and he um, began communicating with Victor Hugo, his good friend, um, uh, sometime after his death, and explained exactly what uh, took place as he recalled it. And he said there was no pain. He remember. He remembered being outside of his body uh, after the uh, guillotine fell on him, and he saw his head uh, roll and fall in the slop bucket or whatever it was called, but uh, uh, he indicated no real pain. And this this comes through in a number of messages. Uh, uh, people who said that they really left their body before the uh, pain took place. There was one which um, uh, he was in a head-on mo- um motor vehicle accident, and uh, he said he, he remembered watching the whole thing. He remembered leaving his body and then looking down and seeing his body mangled uh, in the crash, but he felt no pain. And uh, there are a number of um, such communications suggesting that the person 
actually leaves his body, his spirit body, leaves his physical body uh, beforehand, and and no pain was experienced. And the URL for your blog, Mike, again. Uh, good question. Um, what White Crow Books? If you just put White Crow Books uh, into a Google search or whitecrowbooks.com, it'll bring it up. It's White Crow Books. It's, it's, it's a great blog. I encourage you all to go there. You know, we're, we're about out of time, and I've got all these questions about the Titanic. Uh, your book on transcending the Titanic beyond death's door is, is, a, is a wonderful book. It's a great mystery story. Um, I, I, I don't have time to even ask you about that book, but I want everybody to be aware that um, if you have enjoyed this conversation, if you have an interest in life after death, do get a copy of Mike's book, Transcending the Titanic, and the book we've been talking about, uh, The Afterlife Explorers, Volume 1, The Pioneers of Psychical Research. Um, that's that's an absolute must. How many more volumes are you going to have, Mike? We've got about 20 seconds. Yeah, three more, three more volumes based upon time, picking up at 1882 and going on up to 1930. That's great. You're going to come back, and we're going to discuss each one of them, right? Sure. All right. There's tons of other questions out of the chat room. Uh, we'll have to have you back and just talk uh, uh, talk some more, sir. Appreciate you coming to the show. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on, Eldon. I very much appreciate it. Uh, we love having you. We've come to the end of another hour of Provocative Enlightenment, and I want to thank all of you for joining us, and I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time and same place. And if you have comments, do let us all know. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. <laughs>